0: Hi, and welcome to my podcast series, The New Abnormal, which aims to make sense of our COVID-19 world today and tomorrow. I'm Sean P. researcher, author, and speaker from Brand Positive. As a researcher, I've spent 20 years conducting ethnographic interviews on global projects. Along the way, I've been lucky enough to have met some amazing people, from psychologists to activists to creatives some of whom I'll be talking to in this series. I'm also the author of The Post-Truth Business, which focused on trust, empathy, and privacy, while my second book, Influencers and Revolutionaries, looked into innovation, behavioral change, and the climate crisis. So, I hope you enjoy the interviews, and if so, please tell your friends, leave a rating, and watch out for our other episodes. Now, without further delay, let's crack on with today's podcast. So today, I'm really pleased to be joined by Richard Watson, who's currently the futurist in residence at the Entrepreneur Centre at the Judge School, Cambridge University. Uh, He's a London-based futurist who helps organisations to think, especially about emerging opportunities and risks. Particular interests include emerging technologies, artificial intelligence, robotics, education, energy and water. Richard has written five books on social trends and the impact of technology and has given over 300 talks to various organizations throughout the world. He's the author of five books about various aspects of the future, including one about the scenario process. He's been a blogger on innovation for Fast Company magazine and has written for the Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies and McKinsey & Company. He's also a visiting lecturer at both Imperial College Business School and London Business School, co-founder of Thinking Aloud, a 24-hour retreat designed to reinvigorate the quality of discourse and debate for leadership teams, and one of the people behind Sci-Fi Nights at the Royal College of Art. Back in the day, he did his uh, PPE at the University of York. So, Richard, hi, and uh, how are you? Hi, Sean. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Not bad at all. Very good indeed. So we're just saying how um, uh, you're rather regretting not being in sunny Australia, but instead you're currently based in a gloomy, chilly UK. Um, but just going back to, um, in terms of talking us through the windy road that got you to where you are now. God, then so uh, there you were doing your PPE back at University of York, um, and uh, so talk us through what happened next.
1: Uh, well, I worked in marketing for a while. Um, I ended up uh, setting up a sort of headhunting business within the design industry, uh, then set up a innovation agency before such things even existed, really, which is probably why that didn't work, um, and um, eventually ended up in Australia with absolutely nothing to do in the – when was that? About 2002 – and set up a sort of, I suppose, I mean, calling it a publishing company is a little bit grand. I, I, I set up something called Brainfruit, which was a quarterly review of, of ideas and innovations from around the world. And it, it looked a bit like a telephone directory. And it, it was sort of sold to the creative industries, I suppose you might call them, so sort of advertising agencies, PR companies, design companies, architects, those sort of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and people loved it but it was a commercial disaster i mean it cost a fortune to produce it cost a fortune to distribute and they kept going missing which was lovely on one sense people kept nicking it but not so great in in some other ways um and that eventually was transferred to a sort of online version which became what's next which i guess ran for about 10 years or something and out of the blue i got an email asking if I'd like to write a book about the future. And I I think that was because I was originally writing about innovation. And Mm. I mean, some people are interested in that, but not that many. I I guess it's a little bit scary on some levels. Um, So I started writing about trends, which people seem to be more interested in. It's more of a sort of a a defensive play, I suppose, if if anything. And then Mm. I started speculating about what was driving the trend? I mean, what what was the sort of the bedrock? Where was it coming from? And also, yeah. started late, late, you know, uh, laterly, laterly. My English. Um, I I eventually started um, speculating about where things might might progress in in the future. And I think that's why I got this email. And this this guy, the commissioning editor, got an idea for a book. Um, I said sure he asked me to write a sample chapter which I did he sent it back saying this is quite possibly the worst thing I've ever read
0: so I was <laughs> like, fantastic yeah uh, you know,
1: um it, it he said it sounds like a, a sort of business report have, you know have you heard of narrative go away and do it again so I went away and did it again and he, he liked it this time so I wrote this book future files back in 2006 and I, I vividly remember half of it was written in six weeks and the other half in six months and I can't quite remember which half was half
0: um, and, I must say I actually have a copy of it on my desk as we speak
1: and uh, it's quite good now because I mean it came out in 2007 so I'm somewhat accountable because of you know I said certain things back then and yeah, I, yeah. Did, I did very well with that because largely because of luck I there hadn't been a book about the distant future ironically for a very very long time and mm. I think people be, becoming a little bit thirsty for one. And then I said a few things which came true rather quickly, not that I was really in the business of predicting, but I did say some things, most notably that I thought the global economy was going to crash because there was too much debt in certain places, which it promptly did. And um, that that did wonders for sales. And it ended up being published all over the place, sort of 24 languages or something, I can't remember. And then I got asked to write some more. And I've slightly been doing that ever since. Um, mm-hmm. And that spawned, talking i bumped into somebody in a bar in paris which got me into scenario planning which linked into the future quite well and uh, then i came back to the uk in 2010 and have essentially carried on doing doing much the same thing although I'm, i'm more sort of embedded into business schools than than before
0: yeah yeah now, I know you mentioned uh, in terms of uh, that for first book, Future Files, a history of the next 50 years, uh, published by Scribe, as you mentioned uh, in there, you know, predictions are a dangerous game. And uh, and as you quote on your site, uh, the old Woody Allen quote, uh, you know, uh, I've seen the future and it's very much like the present, only longer. Um, but from the point of view of scenario planning, for those who aren't familiar with it, and I know um that you again mentioned the site that you're actually introduced to it by napier collins one of the founders of uh of uh, gbn um so perhaps just talk us through scenario planning and what gbm are really um about then and then the sort of things that you've been doing for instance with uh, those like shell
1: well G- GBN actually came out of shell they, they came out of the scenarios team in shell which has been going i think well, it's 50 years old a few years ago i think it, late 50s or something um and scenario planning essentially comes out of military wargaming and battle planning and it's got a history that goes back at least 100 years and you could arguably point to some some indian things back in the 1700s and the, you know the general idea is you you have a couple of plans up your sleeve so you're expecting the enemy to you know come over the hill but what if they don't you know what if it rains and your artillery gets stuck in the mud you know what are your contingencies there and this was developed famously by the rand corporation in in the u s and from memory, I think one of the characters in in Doctor Strangelove was actually based on one of the characters in um in rand yeah, yeah. and then Shell was sort of notable in picking it up as a, as a business tool essentially, and they were using it to work out whether their strategy and particularly their capital expenditure was a good idea like you know if you if you're going to build a pipeline from Russia down into the Mediterranean is that is that a solid business decision and they developed um a process and um most people have some version of 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 their process these days and global business network a couple of the key people most notably Napier were, were in shell and I met Napier, as I say, in just by totally by accident in a, in a bar in Paris when I was attending a, a conference. And um, it's, a, it's a sort of a, it's a mixed scenario planning is a sort of mix between a hedge where you you have multiple futures to sort of think about. And a sort of, you know, and wind tunneling where you take your thinking and you run it through the wind tunnel and you you see what falls off. And it's, Mm. it's essentially based on the idea that the only thing we know about the future with any degree of certainty is that it's uncertain. And the further you go into the future... The more true that becomes. And, and the thing about people like Shell, oil companies and so on, and the military as well, is, you know, if you're building an aircraft carrier or building a pipeline, you're, you're dealing quite often in decades, not next quarter or next year. So you need some yeah. idea of what the landscape's going to look like. And particularly oil companies in the military, you're very interested in things like geopolitics and so on, not just technology and consumer behavior, but a whole bunch of other stuff and i'm trying to think of a really short way of, of, of describing it i mean essentially you have to start with a focusing question it's no good saying what's the future look like you need something mm-hmm. quite specific so if you are a retailer like tesco you might well be interested and i think they probably are right now actually of what's the future balance between physical retail and virtual retail that's that's a reasonably tight question to to explore mm-hmm. and you then look at drivers of change and what you're after are the the, the the lingo is you know cri- well the lingo i use is critical uncertainties. so things that are extraordinarily important and powerful but retain a very very high level of uncertainty so the economy is an absolute classic because we quite frankly have no idea what it's going to do tomorrow let alone what state it'll be in in 20 years time yeah. um, and you you get a couple of these critical uncertainties that are I- ideally orthogonal they're, they're unrelated although these days that's hard to do i mean in, in a perfect world, you might have one supply axis and one demand axis, and you clash these things. So, I, I did some stuff recently for um, globalization post pandemic, and one axis was uh, not access. Sorry, one one axis was profit versus principle, and that's around yep. the operating model of, of capitalism, if you like the business model. Is is it all about money, or there, is there a sort of an ethical element to it? And the other one we were using was chaos versus control, and that was referring to natural systems climate change but also things like biodiversity and and also the human reaction to that chaos and control is the human reaction to chaos controlled or is it's it's itself chaotic and when you Mm -hmm. sort of clash those two drivers those two axes um if you're doing a two by two version and there are other ways of doing it you get four completely different worlds pop out which you then um you build on them you build sort of scenario worlds, and you you have sort of you know you, you talk uh, about th- what the key characteristics are, and and so on and so forth. And you can backfill to the the present as well. I mean, that's not the only way of doing it. I mean, another way of doing it is you 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 just start writing about the expected future in five or ten years' time, and then you might do a version that's better than expected, and then you might do a version that's worse than expected. Um, yeah. And it's not about getting getting it absolutely right. It's a way of Uh, revealing official futures within organizations those futures that aren't questioned largely because they come from the top it's a way of revealing assumptions that perhaps you don't know you're making Um, and as I say it's a a bit of a hedge it's not about picking one scenario it's it's about keeping an eye on all of them and, and adjusting as necessary although there is a very interesting offshoot of of traditional scenario planning which I'm very fond of which is called preferred futures and the idea there is rather than wasting your time trying to work out what's going to happen you you spend your time debating what you want to happen and then you start building it which is very much the sort of the Silicon Valley mindset um you know this this is the sort of vision I've got we're gonna we're gonna build it now come with me on this journey um and, and, and sort of visionary um ceos i suppose by default use preferred futures they have a vision of how the world is going to be or should be and then they start creating that which is not a bad way of dealing with things
0: mm. and, and is that perhaps that, that latter one in terms of um a a preferred version then going for it uh does that lead them to the issue of you know um launching in beta and then just improving as they go rather than trying to uh, build a perfect version that, yeah, I mean, that comes out you yeah.
1: can't build a perfect world but you you can start off in the right direction and and, and adjust as necessary you're going to get you know it's a bit like going sailing or something you know you've got a plan of where you're going and you've probably got a map and a compass and then all mm. of a sudden the wind comes out of nowhere and knocks you sideways and you've got to sort of make it up on the go a bit
0: yeah yeah, yeah. okay yeah, you mentioned um in terms of uh, sort of uh, post pandemic so. Uh, watching earlier on the um i think you something you put up on vimeo recently the excellent piece about uh uh, uh a potential um uh, corona chronology so perhaps just to talk us through um uh, that so um, when you go from you know the great fear right through to uh, the great rebirth
1: sure um well i i was i'm sort of reasonably well known for sort of doing visualizations of the future doing sort of roadmaps if you like um and i was early lockdown or lockdown lockdown 1.0 whatever you want to call it i was yeah, sort of yeah. toying with the idea of doing some kind of map and it just wasn't working and i i ended up just sort of literally in the office wall because i didn't have a big enough whiteboard or anything i i just stuck something up that had i can not know what the axes were um there was there was time against um
0: i've just got time
1: <laughs> <laughs> I Time against get something it's actually a long time ago now and i was just sort of scribbling away and I was also inspired by that, that um, video, The Great Realization, and a few other people that were, were talking about things. And yeah, I, yeah. I just did these sort of thought bubbles, which somebody then said looked more like clouds, so I do them as clouds. And it's, mm. it's just where I thought back in March the world, or particularly the UK, might be going. And it's, it's deeply flawed in that it's linear. You know, that's the mistake mm. everybody makes that, about the future, is they just take present conditions and they project them forward. There's no feedback loops, counter-trends, wildcards, black swans, what have you but yeah. you know, it's it's still something you can do and um i had a sort of uh second wave in there i had a sort of great retreat followed by a great blaming well i think we've had the great retreat slightly um well i'm not sure if yeah. taking any notice anymore actually um but we haven't quite got to the great blaming yet although i think that's going to come because people are going to find out there were problems with the data and hence the models and yeah. that, that is a preferred future because it has a great rebirth at at the end um, um, and I was back in March. I actually genuinely thought that there's a very strong possibility of, of people reinventing everything, including their own lives, because people had had time for the first time to, to stop and really think about w- where they were going. And it's that sort of classic thing that, you know, in, in the face of death, you think about your life and whether it's well lived. Yeah. Philosophical question, really um but since then i think we've sort of got used to things maybe we've decided it's not quite as bad as we thought and there's also quite a few people that just want to get back to normal i mean you know is this going to be a year to remember or a year to forget and uh, you know I, I think it'll veer towards one to forget people will just want to sort of bury it mentally um mm-hmm. or maybe not i mean i my preferred future there is that actually we do take this opportunity or at least we don't we don't squander this crisis to reinvent how we do things i mean it's it's brought out some obvious inequalities. Um, you've got the overlay of sustainability in the background still, so yeah. maybe we will change things. But I'm just an old cynic and think we probably won't. A bit like the financial crisis, we had the opportunity to, to invent some kind of ethical, fair capitalism after after great financial crash in 2008, and we didn't. And I, my cynical yeah. side suggests that we won't do it again this time either. I mean, it's not been in a funny kind of way. It's a weird thing to say. It's not been bad enough to really invent it to invent things. I mean, in, yeah. in the grand scheme of pandemics, this is not a big one.
0: Wow, that's a uh, sobering thought. Okay, another issue. Now you mentioned earlier on. So, uh, having studied PPE when you were back at uni, when one is looking to the worlds of politics, philosophy, and economics, which subject do you feel offers the most use in making sense of the world today?
1: Uh, well, first of all, I should say it wasn't it wasn't a sort of Oxbridge PPE. It wasn't pure PPE. It was it was um, essentially politics with some philosophy and economics bolted on. Um, okay. although I think they've changed the course since. Um well I mean if I had my time all over again I I definitely do philosophy and possibly psychology or history alongside it. Um none of them well actually probably philosophy has been the most useful. Um although I would maintain that I I learned more um working as a dishwasher in a local bistro for 3 years than I ever learned at university and it also told me more about politics and economics ironically as well.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay then so um just talk us through a couple of of the books because I know you mentioned the um, the, the first one sort of uh, straight away. But in terms of, I mean, one of my favorites, certainly, I thought was fantastic. Was digital versus human, which I did note by the way was a title and uh, and an approach which then seemed to be stolen by just about everyone else out there. I saw a mass of titles coming out after yours. Um, so, a does that annoy you? And b, um, yeah, w- well, what else? Have-
1: got, there's <laughs> a very similar book by Gerd Linhard in Switzerland, um, which is um, human versus technology or something, but. Um, I'm not upset about that because I stole it myself. There was a really good article by Gillian Tate in the Financial Times magazine years ago, and I thought, yeah. God, that absolutely nails it. So I think I did actually write to her saying, I, I hope you don't mind, but I never got a response, so I assume she didn't. Um, you know, it's funny. That, I mean, the books, I, my, my response is almost, oh, do you really want to talk about those? I mean, first of all, I don't read them after I've written them, so I can barely remember what's in most of them. Um, and secondly, I just don't really like talking about them. I mean, the, the most recent one, Digital Versus Human, uh is probably my favorite um i mean i think some people say that the first one was the best one um i maybe um but i'm very fond of digital versus human and it gets quite philosophical and there's quite a lot of sci-fi references in there and it's i think it's been quite timely quite frankly um
0: Mm. i mean i have to say just jumping in i mean as you mentioned you know in it you know uh current situation uh, put aside or perhaps taken totally into account on most measures that matter we've never had it so good yet spreading across the world there's a crisis of confidence in progress
1: i think that's very true in in large parts of the world particularly in in the west i don't think that's necessarily true in china um places like that but i think it's 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 definitely true in the uk a lot of europe certainly certainly um the us um, I mean, I'm kind of fond of that book. It's got a good opening and a, and a good a good finish. And it, as I say, it's it's sort of timely and it gets into the ethics of technology and particularly the ethics of AI and, and robotics. So I'm I'm mm. quite, but I, again, I haven't I've actually I haven't read it for four years, so I struggle sometimes to remember what I've even written. Um, I mean, whether there's another one, I don't know. I mean, I I had problems with that book because it's a bit like the future is you know the future is now, as they say, everything's accelerated. And there were certain things mm. I put in there that I thought were really original and provocative that I had to take out. Before I finished the book because they'd actually happened. Um, And that's that's an increasing problem. The only way of getting around that really is is to start writing science fiction, quite frankly. Mm.
0: Um, So go on then on that point, uh, then. So your uh, inspiration, where do you look
1: Actually, I was just going to say, actually, interesting that the Digital Versus Human is the only book I've written that hasn't got a major reference to a pandemic. I don't know whether that's oh, or a bad thing. the rest of all featured pandemics quite quite solidly. Um, where do I go for inspiration? Um, I used to read a lot of newspapers and magazines. I don't, don't do that so much anymore. In fact, I've, I've stopped reading daily newspapers altogether. Um, I, the only things I read these days are the Weekend FT and, and the Weekend New York Times. And I, I tend to read them on paper when they're quite old, when I've got a slightly calmer mindset. Somebody called mm-hmm. it retrospective reading, which I quite like. Um, I like I like sort of journals and periodicals more, um, I mean, and, and, and or monthly magazines. I mean, I still like The Economist, New Scientist, um, occasionally read MIT Tech Review, Foreign Affairs. But uh, books, I I like books the best, but I struggle to read them because, you know, if you write them, you, your head's so full of what you're writing to, to then pick yeah. up a book. I find that extraordinarily difficult and it takes me a very, very long time to read books and I've got an enormous pile by by my bed. Um, Otherwise uh, talking to people, including strangers trying to cultivate a sort of diverse network, which includes people that fundamentally disagree with everything you believe. Um, I've tried finding odd people, but they generally are so odd that it doesn't really work. I've also tried Mm. picking up random magazines in airports and train stations and that's, hasn't really worked although foreign affairs came out of doing that um i'm actually i think what i'm really into at the moment is is tls times literary supplement that's a really good summary of what's being written about um and the london review of books and and the new York review of books are are similar but that's that's been a real hit over lockdown actually I'm, i'm really happy about reading that um a few things online but but not a lot i like brain pickings but I've kind of, kind of moved away from there, partly because of the, just the sheer quantity of them, and also I yeah. find it difficult to read anything of substance on a screen. Uh, for me, mm. it has to be on paper.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so but looking to the uh, future, rather well, a prescient point uh, for yourself. So, uh, so what's coming up then?
1: <laughs> what's coming up? Damn divine! Yeah, in, terms of,
0: <laughs> in terms of the next half hour of you, but well, uh, have... I know. So I can say I know at the moment, obviously, that um, you've uh, you've recently um uh, become the futurist in residence yeah, at uh, Cambridge.
1: Are you talking? Are we talking about what's coming up generally in the world, or for me? Personally?
0: No, no, for for you personally. So in terms of uh, you know, let's say uh, short to medium term plans in the uh, world of uh,
1: uh, the, well, I I'm doing I'm doing part time at. Uh, the Judge School at Cambridge. At the moment, I can't physically get into the place because only students are allowed in. So I'm working out of one of the the science parks on the outside of of Cambridge. I'm doing some work with them looking, actually non-futures related really. One is looking at the entrepreneurial mind and and states and traits. The other is um, doing some rather fun work plotting Nobel Prize winners since 1904 um, oh yeah. And the 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 obvious thing to do there is to stretch it beyond 2020. So you know what a Nobel Prize is going to be awarded for in 10 or 20 years' time. So there's mm. a, a futures element there. I'm supposed to be rewriting a book. Um, rather, or rather, ironically, I finished a book a week or two before lockdown called "You Are Not Busy," and the first don't laugh. The first half was challenging how p- busy people really are using time diary numbers and so on and. Quite genuinely, most people are not as busy as they think they are. And the other half of the book was about the benefits of not being busy, of of doing certain things quite slowly, of doing nothing, of larking around. And, you know, of course, the minute the lockdown came, the only people in this country that were busy were members of the NHS, the odd lawyer, um, some teachers. Actually, even teachers weren't very busy early on, were they? Um, So the whole thing sort of has been put on ice. So I'm just toying with the idea of whether to rewrite that with a sort of pandemic introduction or a pandemic slant and that was interesting from that perspective because you know people genuinely weren't very busy they had an awful lot of time on their hands for a a month or so and it did change people's minds i think quite
0: a bit yeah yeah it's interesting i mean certainly uh uh, the title of a great fan of the mighty idler um and uh, obviously tom oh, yeah. has been uh, on this series uh, the, the great champions of uh, slowing down and considering well, what, one of the uh, things
1: i've discovered and i didn't realize this if, if you look at a lot of notable historical figures how little work they did i mean they're incredibly famous for everything from scientific to discovery to music to art or even business and actually if you go back a hundred years or so you know the typical day started quite early it started at sort of eight o'clock nine o'clock oh until lunchtime they had a decent lunch um they went for a walk often quite a long one darwin was rather famous for this so was einstein um and then they came back and and essentially did a little bit of correspondence and then dicked around or fell asleep you know it was a four-hour day never mind the four-day week this was a four-hour day and they were supremely productive
0: the four-hour day it is the future let us uh, hope for that but um, Okay, then. It, it does seem that the world of forecasting or future thinking seems to be one that has been absolutely inundated with pretenders to the throne over the last few years. It seemed to be fairly sort of, you know, futurists were fairly sparse on the ground uh, back end of the 90s, and now uh, you certainly can't walk through uh, Williamsburg, um, uh, or certainly when one's allowed to do so, uh, Williamsburg or a Shoreditch or a certain bits of Tokyo without tripping over uh, a, a futurist. So... What about the, um, should we say, your viewpoint on the solidity of that world in terms of the amount of practitioners out there? I mean, mentioned earlier on, looking to perhaps mention people like the great Gillian Tett, um, uh, a very, very sharp-thinking person that always seems to have an eye on where things are going. But yeah, when you look at the, if you like, should we say, the the agency uh, uh, industry that is all about futurism, how seriously? Uh, you take it
1: um well suppose the question of course there is did any futurist see that happening um mm. I, I think it's and the same would be true of scenario planning i think these things come in waves the, the sort of mm. fashions for these things um there is a little bit of a thirst i suppose um because it's become so complex and uh, fundamentally uncertain and volatile the old VUCA. um yeah, the, yeah. there's a, the people are people trying to sort of do a bit of sense making sort of try and establish patterns even when there aren't any and trying to sort of i mean the, the the human desire to see what's over the hill and around the corner goes back a very very long way but i would imagine mm. it's it's sort of deepened recently because it's just got so flipping mad um although ironically i it's become harder to do it i mean it was a lot easier 10 years ago i mean it's still it's still reasonably easy i think to go out 10 20 years but trying to sort of go out two or three or four or five at the moment is unbelievably difficult um mm. The, the problem I have with a lot of people, do, I mean, there are some very, very good people doing it, but I think a lot of people, they're not really doing futures at all. What they're doing is trends and they extrapolate a bit um, mm-hmm. or they are purely looking at technology, which I think is a mistake. You, you've got to overlay psychology with technology and you've got, you've got to look at the whole range of things. It's, you know, its it's societal attitudes and behavior, the tech, the pricing, the regulation, the whole, the whole, the demographics. I mean, demographics to me is probably the most important area to look at i mean forget yeah. technology actually you know if you if yeah. you're running a business right now everyone's sort of obsessed with ai um you know although ai has been here for ages um you know broad ai strong ai yeah. or something actually t- pay attention to demographics that's you know aging populations more people living alone uh, labor yeah. shortages is probably going to be more impactful in the shorter term to you than than what's going on with quantum computing
0: hmm I know bit talk about sort of the demographics and just, uh, yeah, so in terms of uh, population dynamics, uh, average age uh, in a whole array of Middle Eastern countries versus the rapidly aging Northern Europe, et cetera, et cetera, just appear to be one of those really red hot points.
1: Yeah. although that's being ignored because organizations, particularly marketing departments, are not run by older people.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Again, I mean, on that, I mean, it's it's a slight side issue, uh, really, very much a side issue, but it's often said one comes right back to the the world of agencies uh, of all their uh, types and varieties that yeah the average age of an ad agency is what something about 26 average age of a media agency is about 25 so you've got a couple of uh, um, sort of uh, 50 pluses in there and then everyone else is very very young which tends to be one of those things or one of those reasons that a lot of people point to the outputs of agency world and why it's often so uh, ineffectual
1: but it's not just agencies i mean you know the bbc is obsessed with youth this this ridiculous- mm track and trace the government's been involved with which unbelievable if you haven't heard this they spent 10 billion on which is staggering considering it's an app with some call centers um it doesn't <laughs> yeah, yeah. work on a lot of people well it doesn't work on my phone because my phone's too old and it doesn't work for my parents who are late 80s well they don't even have phones you know there's just yeah. this assumption if you're sort of 20 early 20s mid 20s something that, that everyone lives like you and i'm afraid that's just not the case
0: yeah yeah okay so just in terms of perhaps a couple of the scenarios that you came up with from the point of view of your chronology and where things are going are are there a couple yeah perhaps just take a a couple of those uh, and just talk about them in a bit more detail in terms of the ones that now looking back on what you've written and what you've considered that you think to be particularly um, dynamic
1: well i mean the recent set i'm not i'm not very happy with with the narratives although i like i like that matrix i like the sort of profit principle against chaos and control i also there's another one i was playing around with which i quite like which is a sort of open versus closed world and then a sort of focus on health versus wealth Although that that's that's a non-choice that that's not a choice you you can make you have to have both of those it's not it's not actually a very good driver either it's i mean it's sort of pertinent to what's going on right now but it's go out 10 20 years it's possibly quite quite irrelevant um there was a a matrix I did back in oh probably about two thousand or or maybe slightly after that, which was around future consumer mindsets for twenty thirty which i'm I'm still using actually, and that one I don't have to remember it or at least visualize it in my head it was it was essentially a sort of one axis is we against me, so oh, yeah. it's it's the individual versus versus the group, and that that axis has always fascinated me and and mm. it, we've been going more into me. Over the last ten years, than than ever, and you know, it's all about personal technology and my rights rather than any res- group responsibilities. Um, and the other was a, was a simple sort of optimism pessimism driver or axis um, built largely around sustainability, but overlaid with the, with the economy. And we we had um, four really quite interesting worlds came out. One one was morism, which was essentially business as usual with the volume termed up to eleven. So sort of extreme. Capitalism, individualism, consumerism—just uh, essentially driven by greed. Um, quite, quite sort of Mumbai, Shanghai, Dubai. Actually, in, in some respects, yeah. Polar opposite, which is enoughism. Which actually, I think there was a book called Enoughism at some point, point. and that—that's all about. Um, well, it's it's sort of altruistic. It's community. It's nice community. Quite Scandinavian yep. in feel. Quite, quite sort of ethical. Um, you know, you look after things when they go wrong. You fix them. You don't just throw them out and buy another one. Um, Mm. there was a one, which was, um, personal fortress, which is essentially a scenario built around fear, um, which is nasty local. So that's sort of xenophobic blame culture, um, which actually America parts of America remind me of that at the moment. Um, and the other was, was smart planet. I think we might've stolen that term from IBM. Um, and that's sort of driven by human imagination and ingenuity. And it's, it's very Silicon Valley. It's, it's emerging tech. It's youthful um populations or not youthful populations it's sort of young young younger generations in charge it's it's very accelerated it's it's very ai and numerically based and, and so on and so forth and I, I'm, mm. I'm still fond of those actually and although actually you know that what i'm most fond of is 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 a merger between the two the intersection between enoughism and smart planets really interesting to me so you could take mm. bits of those two i mean obviously in the middle you're in everything converges and where they get most interesting is you take them to the absolute outer edge you really push it because that's where you challenge yeah. your thinking so what is the absolute extreme form of enoughism or smart planet Yeah, and I think actually, by the way, that that's a really important thing on on futures generally is you've you've got to sort of push to the absolute limit of of what's possible. And one of the reasons we got caught out by the pandemic is uh, well, actually, that's that's a that's a slightly separate story actually. And I was involved in some government workshops where you know it was widely agreed that that was the biggest, um, most likely high-impact risk we were facing and still nothing much was was done about it. But I think a lot of people got caught out because they didn't really think it was possible. Um, They were looking Mm. at probable futures, not possible futures. And if if recent experience with the pandemic and Trump has told us anything, you've got to look at quite extreme futures just just to be safe.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just to... um, That's a fascinating point. Just to begin to finish off then. Um, And, I mean, really this series has been... I've been mean, drawing into the, the thinking viewpoints of a ton of interesting people, um, uh, just like yourself. And it's been really, really interesting to hear what you've been uh, saying, Richard. But just give us um, perhaps a few minutes on, um, if you like, the the focal point I've been making around um, hope, community and resilience. So what's your take on those three things, hope, community and resilience?
1: Um, long, silent pause. Um <laughs> I mean, hope, I don't know what to say about hope. I mean, it's not really a strategy, is it? Um, resilience, I'm sitting on the fence on that one. I can't make my mind up whether we're resilient or not. I worry about, sort of, you know, younger generations and how resilient they are. Um, community is, is, in fact, all of these things have come through in quite interesting ways with the pandemic. I mean, community has sort of, I mean, it depends. I mean, where I live, community has sort of strengthened as a result of the pandemic. And everyone's been sort of been really nice to each other and helped out and, um, whether that's broadly true, I, I really couldn't say. Um, mm-hmm. I am hoping we will go back to community. I mean, I think, you know, I'm interested in counter-trends and, you know, the, the counter-trend to globalisation is localization, and to some extent tribalism. And we get quite tribal when we're anxious and we're certainly anxious at the moment. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm hopeful about community. I'm also hopeful about, um, I mean, one of the things I think that's going to come out of, of broad AI Potentially is a focus on you know who we are as a species and you know what we're good at and you know is there anything we can do that AI can't do? So Mm -hmm. I I think you know almost the opposite of what a lot of people think. And and, you know all the people are expecting this sort of shiny digital future with with AI and data analytics and God knows what. I mean, yeah, that's all true, but I also think it's there's going to be such a focus on on sort of, you know, on humanity and humans. I mean, it's interesting. There's a brand by Bathing Ape called um, Human Made, I think it's called, which is kind of yeah, interesting. Yeah. And Burton Snowboards have got a brand called Analog. And I'm thinking this is – I mean, I'm reading a book at the moment called Revenge of the Analog. Um, oh, this is quite interesting. Um, and the other thing that's going to come out of all this sort of AI stuff, I think, is is more of a focus on EQ rather than IQ. Um, and hope, yeah. I'm hoping empathy and compassion. But certainly, you know, you, you, machines are no good at leading and inspiring, I, I would argue. Um, you know, that's best done by people. And even management, I think, is best done by, by people putting aside the fact that algorithms are hiring and firing. Um, and to be a really good leader, I mean, first of all, you have, you have to have a vision of where you're heading. And the other thing is y- you need empathy and compassion. And you need to be able to listen to people. Which is is something we've sort of lost a bit. I mean, we're all on sort of broadcast, not receive, um, mm. and the ability to actually just sit down and listen to people, um, I think, is 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 absolutely critical to, to leadership going forward. Um, and also, th- this point about community you know, the, the, what is the purpose of an organization beyond merely making money? Um, and I'd say one of the, one of the sort of key purposes of any organization is, is its place in in its community or its communities, be they physical or virtual. And there is a role for organizations to be to be for, to play there and, and sort of giving back and, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, yeah. those are all really interesting things. I mean, trust comes into this. I mean, I'm fascinated by trust at the moment and particularly which is declining like crazy, particularly among the young. Um, yeah. And I'm really interested in digital trust, which sort of underpins all these expected futures. I mean, you know, if you've not got digital trust, nobody's doing online banking. In fact, the entire world stops working without trust um, yeah. and digital trust. I'm particularly talking about privacy, um, data ownership, security, and and so on. And then there's a sort of broader piece around, you know, in in who or what do we trust? And historically, we've trusted people, not machines, but we are potentially in an era or on, on the cusp of an era where we're putting more faith in machines or algorithms than we are in people. And it's fascinating to me what happened in the pandemic with the um, the algorithm that was was choosing grades for university entrants in the UK that, that got it terribly wrong. Yeah. I, I think we're one major cock up away from, from a real change of heart on this one. I mean, I personally think we might find that the data that was being used around infections for the pandemic was fundamentally flawed and contained an enormous amount of false positives, which meant that the models would be wrong. Although the models could have been wrong for other reasons as well. Um, yeah. And we were sort of over reliant on AI and, and modelling and numbers without any real human oversight, or at least the only human oversight was scientists. There's not many economists, historians, psychologists, philosophers there. Um, yeah, yeah. And that could mark a turning point potentially around around this stuff, or maybe not. Um, but I think mm. it's a, it's an interesting thing, and community links into trust very very strongly. Um, yeah. We're more trustful of people that are in our immediate vicinity, immediate community. Um, you know, if you live in a giant city where you never see anyone twice, it, it, it acts in a slightly um, a different way. So, yeah, I think that's a sort of interesting, interesting one to watch, trust.
0: Mm, very much so. I mean, uh, indeed, uh, personal obsession. Uh, obviously, I wrote a book about that myself. But and I think it's very really interesting how, um, um, I mean, certainly one looks to perhaps governments uh, this year, um, like obviously um, uh, New Zealand and then also Germany. One of the few governments that did have, uh, along with all the scientific advisors, would have people on board um, that were philosophers and psychologists, etc., talking about the impact on an empathetic basis on society, as opposed Actually, to purely. the in, Interrupt there. You
1: remind me something I, with regards to the pandemic, and it's back to that sort of we meeting and community and trust. I, I managed to yep. go to Greece twice this year. And it was really interesting in that there was total compliance with mask wearing. I mean, there's there's none of this invisible disability stuff. And yep. the government was completely trusted. The government acted very well and they, they acted early. They acted quite hard. And people are essentially happy to, to do as the government tells them. There's also this sort of Culture of of the the grandma and you want to protect her at all costs. So people are, are wearing yeah, yeah. that And I think one of the problems we've had in the UK and and the same with in the US is we have a very individualistic culture. It's all about me, the individual, and I don't like being told what to do, etc. And that's mm. caused all kinds. I mean, there's more to it than that because I think in America it's that it's the federal nature of of everything, and they've got a healthcare system that's a little bit strange. Uh, yeah, but I think that sort of individualism. Um, fo- focus on, on just me has has been has, has a lot to do with that whereas in a lot of other countries, particularly Asian countries there's much more of a feeling of ours and the community um, and that's yeah. helped them enormously
0: mm. Very much so Well look Richard, that's been absolutely fantastic So uh, just the last sort of thing, uh, I mean, A, is there any sort of uh, takeaway points you'd like to leave for the listeners and then B, where can they track you down
1: um, uh, Well I think what I'm really all about is trying to get people to think um, in a sort of deep, focused, sustained manner, non-distracted manner. And I, one thing I would like people to do is to spend an hour a week just thinking without any kind of distraction. So turn the bloody phone off, turn everything off and just stare out the window. We'll better still go for a walk, but it has to be without a phone. And I don't see really why we can't do a day a month just thinking, disconnected. You know, maybe you walk all day or something, and you know this this is achievable. I mean, there's a great interview by Charlie Rose in the U.S. with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett about about doing just that, about disconnecting and and thinking. And the amount of time Warren Buffett has to think is is quite extraordinary. They they have a laugh about his paper diary, which has got almost nothing in it. And the reason it's got almost nothing in it is he spends his time thinking, and he essentially makes two decisions a year. He he makes very few big decisions, and I think that's the sort of thing we should all all be doing really um i would try and get people urge people to sort of pick up some some interesting magazines and also some collect some interesting people some you know widen your network and 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 so on and i suppose at the end of the day the other sort of points would be to try and keep an open mind about what's possible and change it when
0: necessary Absolutely fascinating, Richard. Okay, so just so uh, any of the listeners who may not know you, and how dare they if they don't, um, just uh, where can can they track you down and find you on uh, their uh, social media uh, world, etc.?
1: Well, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. I am reluctantly on LinkedIn, and you can find me there, although how much longer I will be there is another matter because it's turning into Facebook. Um, I'm pretty easy to find online, although uh, ultimately I have a website now on next.com, which is spelt... N-O-W-A-N-D-N-E-X-T. And you can always find me there.
0: Fantastic. Well, what can I say apart from uh, thank you so much to the deeply interesting uh, and catalytic thinking Richard Watson, who's the futurist in residence at the Entrepreneurship Centre at the Judge School, Cambridge University. Um, Yeah, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Sean. I'm tempted to say see
1: you in the future. Maybe we will. (laughs) Thanks very much indeed for having me.
0: Thank you. Cheers, Sean. Thanks for listening to the New Abnormal podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please leave a rating, tell your friends, and until next time, goodbye.